Hi, I'm Ben Hanani. Welcome to How Do You Do, a podcast featuring creative guests sharing the nuances of their process. Just a quick reminder to subscribe, rate, and review the show on Apple Podcasts is the most helpful thing you can do for the podcast. Hi, everyone. This is Ben Hanani. I'm really excited to present you what I hope is going to be the first of many bonus episodes of How Do You Do podcast. This is a recording from a conversation I moderated on Clubhouse. It was a panel discussion and a Q&A, and the topic was allyship and combating anti-Semitism. And it featured an all-star panel that included Rabbi Sarah Basson, who's the associate rabbi at Temple Emanuel of Beverly Hills, Rachel Nilsson Ralston, the executive director of San Francisco Hillel, Dr. Mark Rodenberg, the Vice President of University Initiatives and Legal Affairs at Hillel International, and Dr. Stephen D. Smith, the Executive Director of USC Show Foundation. I've seen the vibrant community that's being built on Clubhouse right now, and I see a cool opportunity to do a live version of How Do You Do podcast, where rather than the one-on-one conversations we've been having on this podcast, We use Clubhouse as a forum where we can sort of have a reunion of former podcast guests and also bring in some new friends. And this was a great forum. This was a great conversation, really thought provoking, really illuminating. And it feels like a different, it's a different vibe for sure, hosting these these panels rather than one-on-one conversations. But it's been a lot of fun for me and I'm hoping to make it a weekly occurrence every Tuesday at 6 p.m. Pacific time. So I encourage you to follow me on Clubhouse, follow the club How Do You Do pod live, and you'll get notified as soon as we plan these conversations. You'll be the first to know about these great panels I'm trying to put together every week. And I encourage you to to come out if you can and ask questions. And if you can't, if you're busy at 6 p.m. on Tuesdays, the plan is to get these out as bonus episodes. So you can enjoy them. And if you are able to join in real time, you can revisit them. I know a lot of people, you know, you dip into a room and sometimes you have to dip out early. That's kind of the beauty of Clubhouse. So hopefully you can join in real time and and come with a question and be a part of our discussions. And we'll also throw this these conversations onto the feed as bonus episodes. So without further ado, Here's the conversation I most recently had on Clubhouse, and I'm so excited for you to listen and get to get a chance to hopefully participate in future rooms. Oh, one more thing before you listen to the rest of this episode. I'm still new to Clubhouse, so I'm figuring out the best way to capture really good audio quality. You'll notice at a couple very brief points, the audio gets a little wonky, but I can assure you that honestly, like 95% turns out really, really well. So we're gonna, it'll keep getting better as I, as I toy with different tech setups, but I hope you enjoy this conversation and I'm looking forward to hopefully seeing you in real time in the Clubhouse room. How do you do pod live on Clubhouse? And I guess as we wait for Dr. Odenberg to join, I'll introduce the panelists, the panelists we have at the moment. So we have Rabbi Bassin, who's the associate rabbi at Temple Emanuel Beverly Hills. Rabbi Bassin currently serves on the board of Upstart, the board of rabbis of Southern California, and Newground, a Muslim-Jewish partnership for change, where she was the founding executive director. Give us a shout, Rabbi. Uh, nice to be with you guys. Thanks for having me. Of course, of course. And then we also have Rachel Nilsson-Ralston, who's the executive director of San Francisco Hillel, 
which has a presence on multiple campuses in the San Francisco area, including SFSU, USF, and UCSF. Hi, Rachel. Hey, y'all. It's good to be here. And we have Dr. Stephen D. Smith, who's an adjunct professor of religion at the University of Southern California and the executive director of the USC Shoah Foundation, a nonprofit dedicated to making audiovisual interviews with survivors and witnesses of the Holocaust and other genocides a compelling voice for education and action. Hi, Stephen. Hey, Ben. Thanks for having me. Of course. So I, I think before, uh, before we get into questions, I, I want to point out a couple pieces of information I saw from the Anti-Defamation League. So the ADL defines anti-Semitism as the belief or behavior hostile toward Jews just because they are Jewish. It may take the form of religious teachings that proclaim the inferiority of Jews, for instance, or political efforts to isolate, oppress, or otherwise injure them. It may also include prejudiced or stereotyped views about Jews. Close quote. And I think what's what's kind of disturbing to read is that the ADL in their latest report noted that 2019 was the year with the highest number of anti-Semitic incidents against uh, you know the Jewish community, with more than 2,100 acts of assault, vandalism, and harassment reported across the country, and that marked a 56% increase in assaults. So that that makes me personally wonder what what can we attribute to this rise in anti-Semitism? And I, I will, we'll start it off with you, Stephen, because I know you've been studying this for this very question for 25 years. If you could if you could start this conversation with what you've noticed as some of the factors that account for this rise in anti-Semitism and how we might be able to mitigate them, if not eliminate them. Well, anti-Semitism tends to be a symptom of uh, a society itself. Um, society which is not comfortable with itself tends to be not comfortable with its Jewish community, and they tend to be the first scapegoats of a divided and unhealthy society. We've seen that happen time and time again over many centuries, and so it should be no surprise that in the time of polarization and division within society, a uh, time when people are uncertain about their identity um, and that there is you know, an increase in extremism which tends to go alongside uh, polarized and divided societies, then you get an increase of violence, um, either rhetorical violence or physical violence against Jews, and it's just a pattern that we have seen over and over again. So in terms of mitigating that, I suppose that's what this uh, whole conversation for the next hour is all about. How, how do you mitigate um, against that when, um, and I, I, we have to put this in the context of not only Jews are experiencing uh, increases of violence against them because of their identity. So in, in the context of America today, we're seeing an uptick in a rise of um, you know, racism and, and homophobia uh, and all of the other sort of hatreds that direct minority communities who are most vulnerable at the time of increasing, um, you know, disparity and division within society. So first of all, I think we shouldn't take it in isolation and the solutions, whatever those solutions are going to be, have to be both specific and universal. It should never be specific to one community only, even though you have to be specific, otherwise you don't mitigate that particular uh, you know, crime or violence or hateful uh, hate speech against that group. But you also have to be universal because the problem most likely is as much universal as it is specific. Hmm. Yeah, that reminds me of the, the quote from Sasha Baron Cohen's uh, address to the ADL where he said, 
Uh, well, actually, sorry, this was in his New York Times interview. He said, in 2005, you needed a character like Borat, who was misogynist, racist, anti-Semitic, to get people to reveal their inner prejudices. Now those inner prejudices are overt. Racists are being proud, or racists are proud of being racist, close quote. So absolutely, it's, it's pervasive in the Jewish community and beyond. I'm wondering, um, Rachel, if you could talk about your experiences combating it at the campus level. I know San Francisco State has been in the headlines in the past couple of years. I'd love to know your experiences tackling it head on. And I, I want to introduce as well, Dr. Rodenberg, who's the vice president of university initiatives and legal affairs at Hillel International. So if we, I'd love to hear the Hillel perspective on how we're, how we're combating anti-Semitism at the campus level. Yeah, thanks, Ben, and welcome, Mark. We work together. Mark and I work on um, this, sadly, uh, too frequently. So, you know, I, uh, I think that the biggest thing that folks um, misunderstand when they're thinking about the campus climate is they're thinking about one piece, which is very true, which is young people coming in open-minded from a variety of backgrounds and life experiences and learning and and kind of in these environments where we're talking about facts and narratives but that there's um equal opportunity mindsets that folks are absorbing lots of different perspectives and and the campus isn't really like that at all many of us went to university ourselves and we know that professors can be biased um classes can have narrow perspectives offered and so it's really a, a challenge when people are coming in when they might have never met a Jewish person, they have no context of Jewish history, um, but they're also there to learn about their own story or other people's stories. How do you piece Jewish community narratives, identities, practices, rituals, um, and, and the very real ways in which we're targeted, classic archetypes and, and modern ones, into that context of the campus? It's, it's really a challenge, and it doesn't happen as... Um, you know, seamlessly as we might all assume places of learning would present fair and, you know, information, I think, you know, about what you were just saying, Stephen, it's, we're kind of in a post-factual world. Um, and, and that's a real challenge to places of learning. So the way this shows up, um, in my experience at SF State is that we have activist professors who have, you know, particular viewpoints and, um, things they're looking to advance. And they're not interested in, in what you know other places might be interested in dialogue or dual narratives or um, even real you know solid provable facts. And so you have these young people coming in. They're um, they're at risk for if the first thing they're being presented is hyper biased, um, that becomes truth for them, and then it becomes really hard, especially when we know that social media channels aren't exactly furthering um, diverse perspectives for students to, to build real relationships in their own experiences. So this has shown up in a variety of ways. We've seen most recently um, this year at SF State, Leila Khaled, who is um, you know, a convicted terrorist in the plane hijacker, hijacker be invited to give um, a lecture as part of a series on feminists. And I think that the challenge with that is how, who do you platform and why? And are you glorifying someone's actions instead of teaching people about the real harm that can be caused and, and forgetting that the people who were targeted by those actions are also sitting in the classroom and on the campus and this isn't 
um, abstract or separated from their identity. So we see it show up in my context much more on left-wing progressive anti-Semitism. And I actually think that's another point to the challenge, which is that it's, it's pretty easy for most Americans, even if they don't have relationships with Jews, to, to recognize Nazis or swastikas or white supremacists who are saying horribly anti-Semitic or racist or other things. It gets really hard for folks when it shows up in seemingly progressive, inclusive, diversity, equity, inclusion-focused spaces. And before, before Mark, we hear from your perspective as well, Rachel, if you could, I think if you tap on my icon, you'll be able to make me a moderator again. Um, so if you're able to experiment with that while Mark shares his perspective, that'd be great. Thank you. Well, Ben, thank you so much. And uh, as Rachel said, we um, work very closely together. Um, um, in my role as the Vice President of Hillel International, uh, we're active on over 550 campuses around the world. And the, the very sad, sobering reality is that in the last six academic years, from 2013 until uh, COVID closed down almost every U.S. campus uh, last March, Hillel has seen a six-fold increase in the number of anti-Semitic incidents on, on college campuses. That's not a 60%, that's a 600% increase. And that caused our, our organization, Hillel International, to need to focus and create a program, which we call a Campus Climate Initiative, to help universities across the United States, North America, actually, to grapple with this uh, stunning uh, and, and sobering rise in the number of attacks on our students. Um, I want to say one contextual thing, and then I'll, I'll mention something in particular about anti-Semitism on campus, <clears throat> and that is there's a tale of two cities quality to this, and that um, there it, it, it is the best of times for many students in the past several years, uh, obviously COVID accepted, in terms of the amount of opportunities that they have to express themselves Jewishly, to learn about uh, our Jewish past, our culture, our history, our relationship to Israel. Jewish studies departments and programs across the country have never been stronger. <clears throat> and the vitality of Jewish programming, not only from Hillel, but from Chabad and other organizations has never been more robust. But unfortunately, it is also accompanying on too many campuses, not everywhere, but on too many campuses, uh, as Rachel describes at, at SF State, but on many campuses, north, south, east, and west, um, uh, <clears throat> a marginalization, a set of attacks on Jewish students that has not been seen in the past, uh, at least not in our lifetime. Um, this has also been manifested, unfortunately, in the, in the social media space uh, during COVID. Uh, Hillel and ADL and other organizations expected that there would be a reduction in the number of these kinds of anti-Semitic attacks because the campuses were essentially closed um, <laughs> since last March, but that has not proven to be the case. The amount of bullying on social media, the number of swastikas and defacements on Jewish buildings um, <clears throat> has not abated, and, and, and that's a real um, sobering fact. Um, as, as Rachel said, on, on many progressive campuses, hers is one, um, anti-Semitic attacks, uh, bullying, marginalization, exclusion of Jewish students uh, uh, manifests uh, largely from the left. 
Um, and uh, the term Zionism and, and Zionist have uh, become in these uh, um, locations, um, unfortunately for too many uh, people, just an epithet, just a, a, an insult. It's the way the word kike was used years and years ago. Most students don't have a clear understanding of what Zionism is, and most students don't even know whether the person, the fellow student, that they're attacking with that term um, has a relationship with Israel or knows something about that student's uh, feelings or opinions about Israel. Um, they use the term Zionist simply as an insult, um, as a placeholder for white, privileged, colonialists, and so forth. Um, and just as, as, as the word Jew was used derogatorily to refer to many things that people hated about other people in the past, sort of a catch-all term, even though they had no real reference point for the term Jew in their experience. We know that anti-Semitism exists in people, even in countries where there are almost no Jews at all, right? No experience, no personal experience with Jews. Similarly, the term Zionist is often thrown around at our students without any awareness of whether the students they're attacking with that term um, are in fact Zionists as we would understand that word in the Jewish community. But it's also important to point out that uh, Jewish students have been attacked also from the right and the, 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 um, the, the sickness of white nationalism, which has reared its ugly head in more prominent ways in the past several years, um, is also a deep problem on certain campuses. Um, I think Rachel's absolutely right, however, that many of our students are able to understand those attacks in a in a in a way that doesn't disrupt their educational experience and doesn't make them feel quite as marginalized because in most cases our students understand um, uh, you know a swastika in the in the snow in front of a quad or um, uh, a graffiti on top of a uh, bathroom stall or, or in a dormitory <clears throat> that expresses white racist nationalist sentiments um, as being the act of, of crazy people, of kooks. Um, uh, and, and they are able to dismiss that and go about their, their day in a way that's different when their friends, the groups they want to associate with, the partnerships they want to create with other progressive student organizations isolate, demean, and marginalize them. That's a more difficult thing for, for many of our students to cope with. I want to explore this point about the, you know, actually facing some adversity from progressives, because this is something that Rabbi, you sent me a brilliant article you wrote about. You wrote an August 2019 op-ed for the Jewish News of Northern California, and it was titled, I am a rabbi, here's why I'm going to the Women's March. And you discussed how even though you had disagreements with some of the beliefs of the leaders of the Women's March, you still felt compelled to go. I'd love if you could share your perspective and how you've you've kind of uh, found found the way forward with still being involved in progressive causes while also you know being holding true to your own beliefs. Sure. So, um, I mean, the first framework that I'll offer is that I think uh, the Jewish community often does itself a disservice um, when. We uh, situate ourselves on one side of the political spectrum and we place anti-Semitism and the um, 
worst incarnations of it on the opposite side of the political spectrum. So if you're on the political left, then the worst incarnation is on the right. And if you're on the political right, then the worst incarnation is on the left. Um, And the reason that I think that that is so counterproductive um, is because we're not working within our own spheres of influence um, to combat the anti-Semitism within the spaces that we actually sit. So um, I began my rabbinate uh, actually as the executive director of a joint Muslim and Jewish organization. Um, that was tackling relations between these two communities that had become so toxic because of the Israel-Palestine discussions and how they derailed local collaboration and local efforts between Muslims and Jews. Um, And, you know, one of the things that I found in this space is that the real relationship building comes first before people are able to hear and internalize the critique, right? So that does require a good faith effort. And um, as our Hillel professionals are pointing out, that's not always the case um, on these campuses. There's not always a good faith effort, but there are often many folks um, in these communities that seem counterintuitive for building connections and relationships with that are open and interested. Um, And, you know, in my work in the Muslim community, Um, I've had it across the spectrum. You know, I've sat in front of a room of 500 Muslims at a convention and spoken about what the word Zionist means to me and how and why I own that term while acknowledging um, the difficult resonance that it has for them, you know, with the hope not to attack um, their understanding or experience of that word, but with the hope of perhaps expanding Um, the way that they might understand it, maybe putting a a little bit of a chip in that narrative. Um, But I've also been in situations where the first phone calls that I get when a synagogue is attacked, be it Pittsburgh or Poway or, you know, local synagogues are defaced, the very first phone calls that I get checking in on me and my community are inevitably from my Muslim partners and the relationships that I've built in those early new ground days. So, you know, I I know how toxic a lot of this conversation can seem um, and hopeless. Um, And, you know, I I still find myself optimistic um, about what's possible, even as we're facing increasing polarization um, and increasing toxicity, because there is actually a lot of space and sphere of control that we have Um, I think there's just more strategy that we have to exercise and thoughtfulness um, about how to go about that. Hey, this has been, again, jumping in real quick to say that there was a brief audio mishap here where the question I posed was basically elaborating on what Rabbi Bassin said, and I was pulling Stephen into the conversation. So a, a tiny snippet of it got cut off, but just know nothing really much was missed. Stephen is now going into an awesome story about how he engaged a really thoughtful dialogue with Deshaun Jackson. Uh, Deshaun Jackson of the Eagles, you may remember last year, um, you know, posted some, you know, horrific comments about, you know, what um, Jews in America would do in terms of, you know, the old sort of um, stereotypes of Jewish power and, and conspiracy. 
uh, and was you know very quickly brought to account for that. Um, again, um, yeah, I saw that as a, an opportunity for you know, for learning, and Sean spent some time with a Holocaust survivor that I know very well, and we were all planning to go to Auschwitz together actually, but didn't in the end because of the pandemic. But I had Deshaun on a program with me with 400,000 students uh, a few weeks ago as their teacher on the topic of anti-Semitism and had complete trust in him to come onto that program with those 15 to 17 year olds. And I didn't know what he was going to say, but I trusted that he would use his judgment well and that what he had learned would be show the allyship that's in your title today and that investing that trust in him to say, I'm going to give you 4,000 students to speak to, say what you'd like to say to them. Um, what, what an amazing mentor he was to those young people. How eloquent, how humble, how dignified. Um, I put him in a classroom with any kids, anytime on the topic of race and anti-Semitism because boy, did he learn it and did he explain it well. And so for me, we can, I'm looking for how do we move past the violence? How do we move past the fear to find that space where allyship can happen, even if it's painful to get there? Mm-hmm. The, the, the Sean Jackson example is a great one and one of, one of many high profile ones in the past year, especially with athletes. You know, we've seen We've seen Zach Banner of USC also come out um, in, in the wake of the Deshaun Jackson quotes, and and he, you know, let, lent lent out his support. And mo- more recently, actually in March, we saw uh, Julian Edelman of the Patriots reach out and invite Myers Leonard of the Miami Heat over to a Shabbat um, after after Myers Leonard used an anti-Semitic slur during a video game live stream session. So th- these are the things that, that that give me a lot of hope, and I'm really humbled to be among a panel that is leading these efforts. So on that note, I'd love to invite some listeners to the stage to ask questions. There we go. Scout Sobel, you are coming to the stage. Hello, Scout. Hi, everybody. Thank you for such a fruitful and important conversation. And so often I find that conversations like these are so emotionally taxing for us to have. Do you all have any tips on how we can remain an ally and combat anti-Semitism while emotionally protecting ourselves so that we really can show up and, and do the work needed without getting too bogged down because sometimes obviously this is a very emotional subject. So I would love to hear maybe from some of the panel what they do to continue this work while emotionally taking care of themselves. I don't mean to cut in front of the rabbi here, but I, you know, I think that um, Judaism for me at least offers some of the the beautiful um, touch points that are so so necessary to to heal and um, provide community and connection and reflection. And I, I really appreciate the question, Scout, because um, I see that every single day um, for our students and our young people who are inundated with this and and they need really important moments of rest and pause and recharge um to feel proud enough to stand up and share their very personal stories with friends and and their peers on campus to help educate people as we try to dismantle um anti-semitism and other hatreds so i will just say that for me shabbat is essential 
um, you know, text study offers new insights always. And I think it's actually really beautiful that the very thing that, you know, can be what is being weaponized or I'm targeted for, my community is targeted for, brings me a sense of strength and belonging to an unbroken chain. Um, and I hope it, it does that for anyone who shares that identity or can participate as a fellow traveler in our communities. Uh, Scott, let me just add, uh, this is Mark Rotenberg. Um, uh, your question is just perfect uh, in, in that I, <laughs> I had an experience just last week um, with a, a group of students, a large group of students at a, at a large um, state university um, who were engaged together in a, um, a Holocaust memorial leading up to Yom HaShoah and so on. Um, uh, and um, they asked me that very question. They said, you know, going through this very painful experience, planning this, uh, reading the names of thousands of victims, um, um, thinking about victimization, exclusion, anti-Semitism, violence, um, how do we how do we get out of it how do we leave that experience and and try to find something more more hopeful um and i i it was a profound question and you've asked the same kind of thing what do people do to get to 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 find the beauty and and we we i i turned the question back to them and i said you know what is it about <laughs> your jewish experience uh thus far at at, at home um, at camp with friends on campus and off. Um, and they beautifully narrated different experiences about the positive qualities of their Jewish lives. Some were very simple. Um, some were, were very deep. But I think that's the beginning of the answer, Scott, uh, Scout, is that, is that we all have to find it within our tradition, within our families ways in which we can say to one another, yes, our traditions, our values, what we stand for as a people, as a heritage, um, those are really important. They're valuable. They, they allow me to get up in the morning with a feeling of gratitude, saying the morning blessings sometimes may be just a simple thing where we express gratitude in, in 15 different ways. Um, those are the kinds of things that give me some strength and I know give many of our students the strength when they feel uh, attacked or marginalized or, or that anti-Semitism is becoming um, too large a factor in their lives. Just a to add to that, it's a really nice point, Mark, about family. Um, you know, um, uh, I see identity um, as one of the answers to this, Scout. You know, um, like having this sense of grounded identity in who you are and being confident in, the, in, in that. You know, we, we've sort of moved from sort of binary identities, you know, him and her, black and white. Now we've actually realized people can have multiple identities. But I, I see this much more, you know, we finally discovered intersectionality, only to find out actually it's much more complicated than that because identity is more like a fingerprint than a set of uh, um, labels. Um, it's intricate and it's delicate and it's special to you. And even in our, in our own families, you know, um, I, I don't come from a Jewish background, um, so I don't get attacked by anti-Semitism. And yet my wife and my stepdaughters are Jewish. So, of course, I want to uh, protect them 
at the same time, my first wife was um, from Southeast Asia. So my three beautiful children um, have, you know, they're, um, they, they look more like their mom than me. Although I think they look like me too. Um, and so they're Asian Americans and British, you know, Asians in, in terms of how they might appear to others because they don't see that, uh, that fingerprint of their identity, their multiple identities. And then my brother married a Rwandan survivor. So I have a second generation niece who's a second generation survivor of a genocide, but it's not the Holocaust. Um, and my daughter's girlfriend is from Trinidad and she's living in America and she's black. And so she's both an immigrant and she's a black immigrant. Uh, and so all of those identities exist under our one roof. And so it's a wonderful, complex, uh, painful, joyous experience to be able to know that all those identities are part of who we are individually and collectively as a family and value all of them in different ways. And so I think in a sense, when we talk about one particular form of hatred, in this case, it is the hatred of Jewish people, which we call anti-Semitism. Um, I experienced that, although I am not Jewish, through the lives of others and through the work that they do and through how the people it affects my friends and those around me. So I do experience anti-Semitism. Sometimes it's targeted against me directly because of my job, um, which I actually uh, don't find. Uh, harmful to me because I want to root these people out. I want to find them. I want to talk to them. I want to. I want to take them down because that's what I do for a job. Because I choose that as my mission in life. Uh, and so, in a sense, I'd say this, but um, that's why I kind of run to the fire of it. And say, okay, how do I put this fire out? How do we make sure that it doesn't happen again? How do we bring people together? Because it only happens when people are divided and they don't understand each other. But the same cuts the other way. Have, have as many people made an effort to understand Sean Jackson as he took to understand everybody else when he made that, that terrible error? I don't think so. And so I'm, I want to hold the Jewish community to account. And I want to say, what are you doing? to bring down the hatred that attacks other people in our community. Because um, we know what hatred does, because we know what the Holocaust was, and we know how it happened. And so are we just defending ourselves, or are we defending all of ourselves? So those are the ways in which I kind of draw strength from this, um, and actually don't find myself cowering against hatred. Of hatred. Um, I, I want to fight that, but not fight back. I want to fight it with the tools that we have available to us to convene people under this sort of idea of allyship, which is the, the theme of our uh, talk today. I so deeply resonate with that, Stephen. I think, you know, the first and the easiest tool that we often reach for is the tool of marginalization. Um, but I'm not sure. In fact, I'm pretty convinced that it is not the most effective tool that we have in our toolkit. There are some people who are profoundly ideologically driven and um, marginalization is the appropriate tool for them. But for a large number of people, um, you know, to reach for that first is a mistake. And, and Scout, you're so right. Like part, part of then engaging with this work and trying to find that profound place of empathy with somebody who comes at you with um, hate or ignorance or something that feels harmful, even if they didn't intend it, um, that takes a tremendous amount of resilience. 
Um, and, you know, I look to the model of, of past activists and, and one of the most profound um, civil rights songs for me that, that still kind of sticks with me and informs my work um, is Keep Your Eyes on the Prize and Hold On. You know, and, and it's, it's, you know, don't let the pain of that moment um, overwhelm your ultimate goal. You know, I hear a lot of people throw out, I can't, I just can't. That person is too much, you know, they're irredeemable, I just can't. And I think that more is lost when those are the words that we utter rather than focusing on um, the prize at the end of this, which is ultimately um, uprooting uh, the deeply ingrained manifestations of, of anti-Semitism. Um, and that takes focusing on the small wins that you get along the way. You know, not, not everything can be as um, groundbreaking and profound as, as, as Stephen's work with, uh, with Deshaun Jackson, which is just incredible, right? But I would imagine that all of us have a few stories here and there. Um, where we spoke up or we asked a question when somebody said something off color um, and that sparked a conversation. And, and to root ourselves in those small victories um, as a way of also reaffirming the type of people that we wanna be in the world, right? If we wanna affirm our core human dignity, then we have to acknowledge that in other people even when it's hard and even when it seems like they um, have nothing in common with us and we don't want to see their human dignity. But reaching for that in those most difficult moments is precisely what's going to get us to the prize. Thank you so much for answering that. I, I really appreciate all of your answers and um, definitely do want to highlight the sentiment of combating anti-Semitism also means combating all injustice towards all minorities and races. And so I think that the work is is ever going, it's ever expanding, and it, it goes far beyond our community. But as Jews, I think we are in a unique position, unfortunately, to understand what that feels like. So thank you, everybody, for, for chiming in. I appreciate it. Thank you for the question, Scout. Great. Jonathan, let's bring you up to the stage. Hello. Hello, Jonathan. Thank you for joining us. Thank you very much for this panel. This has been a great conversation. I wanted to ask about uh, Tucker Carlson. He recently made comments about great replacement theory, uh, which isn't just anti-Semitic, but it's never not been anti-Semitic. Uh, and I'd love to get the, the panel's thoughts on, on what that means, and specifically if there are remedies other than deplatforming. Is there a way that we can engage his audience, which is massive in a dialogue, or is the, is the best path forward really to do everything we can to get him off the air? Thank you. So I'm going to jump in on this one um, and seemingly contradict what I just said before. Um, and that, you know, marginalization shouldn't be the first tool that we reach for. However, um, when people have a consistent demonstrated track record and commitment um, to a particularly toxic ideology, um, I do think that deplatforming uh, is a, uh, is an appropriate tool. Um, so, you know, I think um, the ABL's call 
for Tucker Carlson uh, to be removed from Fox Network is appropriate. Um, There have been many uh, problematic, racist, um, anti-Semitic, you name it, ick, uh, things that Tucker Carlson has done at various stages of his career that have um, lost him different advertisers. The consequences have never been significant enough. Um, so, you know, in this case, I do think, um, that we see deplatforming as an appropriate remedy. I would, I would agree, um, with, with Sarah. I think that, you know, the, the bigger theme of the discussion tonight, um, which is looking at anti-Semitism as part of a complex root system of white supremacy and, and, you know, the title of it, allyship, like we all need to be building those relationships and showing up um for all of our siblings and neighbors when they are targeted and and it just feels to me like when you have individuals who are demonstrating unrepentant consistent um you know and dangerous words we know where that can lead and and what it has unleashed um even in our backyards and so we we need to take firm stances on that but I also think it's about engaging systems and it's, and it can be why the work is so exhausting um, because it's usually not just like one person. We could remove Tucker Carlson and there's sadly far too many people who would just jump into that time slot and espouse more thinly veiled dog whistles. Um, and, and it becomes about how are we engaging then the networks, everyone, you know, what are the educational pieces we're putting out there to help people recognize what is overt, what is more, you know, subliminal and how are we challenging people on the seemingly like dinner party comments that might make everyone uncomfy, but really are the building blocks to allow people like Tucker Carlson to seemingly discuss things like that, that, you know, have no place in our society or shouldn't and have for far too long. I just, I think one thing just to add to this. Hi, Jonathan, how are you? Hello. Um, so I, I was thinking that, um, you know, very often we go to this sort of uh, First Amendment argument, and as you can tell from my accent, as a relatively new American, I'm still getting used to the Constitution and figuring out what all these amendments are. Um, but, you know, when it comes to private organizations, uh, it's about values and what you would and want to accept on your platform, um, because it's, that you know, that that's a decision of the, uh, you know, the owners of that platform as to where they're going to accept. Um, the behavior of their presenter or their representative or whoever it might be. And, and I think we tend to get wrapped in this sort of uh, First Amendment sort of argument that anybody can say anything to anybody, anytime, anywhere. Um, and while you know, hateful speech is protected by the First Amendment, and I um, you know, think that the First Amendment is you know, just a, a wonderful part of our Constitution, we also um, need to ensure um, that when we are, you know, as organizations, um, when we put out and allow um, the kind of uh, arguments and positioning and the, the, the language that is used and the, the language that is used of hate that we know can lead ultimately um, to violence. And I think it's up to us to be responsible as citizens to take whatever action we feel is the appropriate one. And therein lies the problem because, in fact, I think a lot of this gets facilitated um, 
not necessarily by the individual, although obviously the individual in this case holds those views and espouses those views, um, but actually there's a whole environment in which that is occurring. And that, I think, is the more troubling uh, part of this, because not only is the organization supporting them, but there's an audience for it too. Thank, thank you all for those comments. I think it's enlightening. And this is, I guess, it's a, there's always a, uh, sometimes there isn't another hand situation, right, as, as Tevio would say. So thank you all. And Stephen, also very nice to hear your voice. My mom says hi as well. Uh, hi, thank you for the question, Jonathan. If we, if we have any questions, I'd love to take them. Um, the, one, the one question that comes to mind for me is just, um, I, I, I know, you know, when I was growing up, I wasn't really taught how to, how to handle a situation if, if I was faced with anti-Semitism. I would love to know um, what, are, what are some resources or what are some actions I can take? And specifically, I think of the kind of the, the dinner party variety we just alluded to, which is what, you know, what if I hear something that is uncomfortable? What are, what are some tools? What are some phrases that, that I can use to start, practically start a, a dialogue that might be productive? That's something that I know I'd find really helpful. So uh, I want to jump in on this one because this is my favorite, <laughs> um, which is just to simply ask the question, not, not even in an aggressive way, what did you mean by that, right? A lot of times um, the casual racism and anti-Semitism and homophobia is de- and, and misogyny is dependent on everybody quietly, uncomfortably trying to laugh it off and change the subjects and move on. Um, and I have uh, made awkward more than one dinner party in my time um, without regrets because, you know, it, it does two things. Number one, um, it gives that person pause the next time before they think about casually articulating that because there's a discomfort and a consequence that comes forth from it. Um, And number two, it demonstrates to uh, the people around you um, how to respond effectively. There was was a time, not with anti-Semitism, but with Islamophobia, there was a time when I was sitting on a plane and I was overhearing a conversation behind me of um, two people talking, one who was very obviously identified as a religious Jew, um, and another person in that conversation who outed himself as an evangelical Christian. And they very quickly found a found fit for their hatred of Muslims. And they started talking about how terrible and awful the Quran is. And how violent it is. And listen, I just wanted to get to my, I didn't want to have earphones and like, but I did. And I, I, Islam, I know books. And, and the person what we even know about religion, right? So then I get to rip out that I'm a rabbi and I've actually studied this, whatever. It, it was word. The people around me said nothing, which was slightly disappointing. But I'm still glad that in that moment, um, I didn't let it stand. Because hopefully the next time they hop on the plane, they'll think twice, you know, rub an about their mutual hatred 
of people. That's so powerful. I, I love that. It's such a simple phrase, but so powerful. What did you mean by that? That That's a really powerful tool. Thank you. Thank you for that. And uh, if there are no questions, we'll, we'll wind this down. I, I really am appreciative of this panel that's come together and, and the perspectives we've had here. I'm, I'm just humbled to share the stage with you all. So thank you. Thank you so much. And thank you all for... Can I just share yeah. one little story? Yes. We go? Yes, please, Stephen. Because tomorrow is going to begin the month of Ramadan. And uh, many of the Muslims that we know in our lives and a part of our lives will be you know, fasting and celebrating the, the month of Ramadan. I want to tell a story about a Muslim friend of mine. His name is Nidal. Um, a few years ago, there was a shooting in Copenhagen. Um, you remember one person was killed at the um, free speech uh, talk and then at the synagogue that night, the gunman attacked the synagogue in Copenhagen and there was a bar, bar mitzvah uh, celebration going on and the security guard gave his life uh, to prevent the gunman getting in to where the children were celebrating. following morning, um, the young man went down to the synagogue. It was his wife's birthday. He had bought her flowers for her birthday. They decided they would take the flowers down to the synagogue and they laid the flowers by the synagogue and a man in a yarmulke came out and he said to this couple, thank you for coming here. It means a lot that you came here today. Um, she was wearing a hijab. Um, he's a Palestinian, so they were evidently Muslim. And the Jewish person said thank you to them for coming. He went back to his friends on Facebook and he said, you know, I have to like, why did they say thank you to me? I thought I was going to get chased away. And so he went to the police and decided he would try and do a peace ring around the synagogue to protect it. And the police said, you must be kidding, it's a crime zone. So he didn't get a license, but he went, he heard that the Jewish film festival was closing. So he phoned the director of the film festival and said, can I help? And she said, well, do you want to come and watch a movie? He said, okay, for every Jewish person you can find, I'll bring a Muslim person. So they went to the movies together and they watched a film about the founding of the state of Israel. So now we have a Palestinian with a group of Muslims watching a film about Zionism. And he said, you know, I came out of that movie. When I go back to see my grandparents in Ramallah, Israel has always been the enemy. He said, but then I was sitting there with new friends and Israel was no longer the enemy. He did the peace ring. You've seen the photographs of Muslims, Jews and Christians surrounding it. His name is Nidal El-Jabri. And for me, he represents everything about what this program is about this evening. And, you know, as he sort of fasts this coming month, I've been thinking about him and what he did. Um, but also I was thinking about that member of the Jewish community that just said one simple thing. Thank you for coming here in spite of everything they just went through. And uh, that kind of uh, is what inspires me to you know, continue in this work that you're trying to get us to talk about. So thank you for that, man. Thank you, Stephen. That was beautiful. That was that was such a lovely way to wind down. Thank you for sharing that. And I'll I'll uh, just end the conversation by letting everyone know that if you are if you found value in, in today's conversation, the plan is to post it on the How Do You Do podcast feed so you can access it there and share it with with friends and family that way. To stay informed about conversations like this, you can follow me on Clubhouse. And I'd love to give our guests an opportunity, our panelists an opportunity to uh, share where you can keep up with them. So we'll, we'll start, I guess, from left to right. We'll start with Rachel. Thanks so much for having me be a part of this important conversation. And thanks to my fellow panelists. I've learned a lot from you and um, we share many approaches. So it's, it's heartening and hopeful to, to hear that. Um, you can keep up with me through either here, my clubhouse 
um, or other social media handles or San Francisco Hillo. We're doing really great work with young people um, across the city and um, we'd love to have folks follow us and support us. Um, you can find me at Temple Emanuel at Beverly Hills, um, and I also encourage you to check out the work of Newground, a Muslim-Jewish partnership for change, um, and the adult fellowship that the program does that builds exactly these skills of allyship building and engaging in difficult conversations that are important across um, different religious, ethnic, um, racial uh, identity lines. Thank you so much for having us tonight. And uh, you can reach me uh, at, uh, at in, in Clubhouse, and, of course, and uh, at uh, hillel.org. Uh, we're on Facebook. We're on Twitter. Um, and uh, if you go there, you look for the, our Campus Climate Initiative, where we're trying to build allies uh, with university administrators, faculty, and students across the North American continent. Thank you. And you won't find me anywhere on social media because I'm a curmudgeon and I don't think these social media companies are helping any of us, so you won't find any of my handles anywhere. However, you can find me at USC Show Foundation, and we do have social media there, so Twitter at USC Show Foundation. Um, check out the Memory Generation podcast launching 15th of April. Um, that's going to be a new podcast that I'm producing with Rachel Sorotti, and it's going to be really interesting. And you'll also find me in the Jewish Journal on the forward most weeks excellent thank you all so much uh thank you thank you for making the time to be here tonight thank you for listening and i wish you all a good night